Beautiful, beautiful song. It's indeed a pleasure to be here as your chapel speaker this morning. I understand that as this speaker was being sought, it was your institution's desire to find the most intelligent speaker that they could find. And being turned down on that occasion, they sought out the most spiritual speaker they could find. And on it goes. Hey, it was a great week, wasn't it? Integrity. Again, I'd say thanks to Rob Provost and for a job well done. It's so great to, yeah. So good to have guest speakers, a fresh perspective, a different way of saying things. And yet at the same time, it might be helpful to have someone who lives in your midst. Someone who knows your hurts, who knows your failures, who knows your successes. Someone who rejoices over your joy, weeps in your sorrow, and really feels a heart-to-heart relationship with you. And that, I guess, would describe me. I love you deeply. I care for you. Your success is my success. Your failure is my failure. I feel that in a very real way. And I've given much prayer to what I would say to you this morning. Dr. MacArthur just returns from Canada and is not with us this morning. And I have the privilege to stand in his stead and say to you some things from my heart. You know, we're a college which has received much. And to whom much is given, much is required. The grace of God is upon the Master's College in an unusual and powerful way. And our college has some distinctives which I think make us or will provide us to be able to impact the world for Christ in a very unique and a very powerful way. One of our distinctives is our commitment to the Word of God. Strong preaching of the Word of God, both in our chapel and in our classroom. Another of our distinctives, and one which I would settle on this morning, is our distinctive to building free-standing moral agents. People who do what they do because they're in love with Jesus Christ. People who say no to what they say no to because they're in a love relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, founded on their study of the Word of God. People who, when they say, yes, I'll do that, also say that because of their relationship. People who do not need a bunch of external props to keep them going in the direction they're supposed to move. But let the props fall where they may. Let the winds of immorality and peer pressure blow as hard as they will blow. This college is committed to producing students who can stand up and say, I live the way I live because I love Christ. And you can take away from me the props and I'll still be there, standing strong. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll look at some famous verses this morning. Verses you may have heard several messages on. But with your permission, I'll try to apply them specifically to the Master's College. It will be my endeavor to speak to you on things which may bother you, which may be too sensitive for you to hear, that you wish I would not talk about. I will address myself to the issues and the concerns of this college as they would be treated in these verses. And I guess I would just add one more thing before we read the verses. Whether or not this school is a school which produces freestanding moral agents is your responsibility, not mine. If we are going to be people who stand strong based upon a relationship with Christ, that will be your decision, your choice, your commitment, not mine, not MacArthur's. Not the faculties, not the staffs, not the administrations. In a very real sense, you determine the spiritual climate of the Master's College. So take what I say in a personal way today, will you? Take the Word of God and say, if it's going to happen here, it's going to happen here because I am making the commitment personally to make it happen here. And all of the buildings and all of the money and all of the speakers and all of the classrooms and everything else will not determine the spiritual climate of this institution. I will. 
you will as an individual. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. These verses invite the reader to run. Let us run is a subjunctive. A subjunctive describes an action that is already being participated in by the author. The author of the book of Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it. We know God did, but what human instrument, we're not sure. And he is saying, I am running the race. And I invite you to come with me. I invite you to run with me. And so this message will be an invitation to you this morning. An invitation to run. To run harder, to run faster, to run longer, to run with greater endurance than you've ever run in your life before. It's an invitation. The other day, Heidi and I were seeking some time together alone, and it was about 9.30, and the kids were asleep and in bed. And we thought it might be great to take a little jacuzzi. So we slipped into the appropriate attire and went down the street and around the corner where there's this jacuzzi and pool complex for our entire housing track. And we jumped in the jacuzzi, and on our approach to the jacuzzi, we saw this, this gal, who turns out to have been about 25 years old. And even in our approach, we saw something rather unusual. She was, if I may say, rather sensual in her approach. I mean, just there by herself, she looked sensual. Heidi even remarked to me about that when we were finished, how the girl barely ever looked at Heidi and mostly looked at me. The way she was hanging on to the pole that you enter the, enter the pool with, the way she held her body, a very, very unusual appearance, very suggestive. But I started with my usual question when I'm in the jacuzzi with people in our neighborhood, where do you live? It's kind of common ground. I try to work my way into a relationship and share Christ. Turns out she lived around the corner down the street, a different street than my street, and she was living with her brother. And she began to relate this tragic story. Her brother had married this gal. This gal had impregnated herself before marriage through him. Obviously, they were in the practice of intercourse, and usually there was a contraceptive involved, and she didn't use it on the appropriate time and therefore got herself pregnant so that he would have to marry her. It's a risk, but he did it. Now they have two children. It appears she, in the last several weeks, has run the credit on their credit cards to its absolute maximum, taken the kids and now left. So this girl, the one I was speaking to, moves in with her brother to try to offer some assistance. And besides, the rent was free, she said. So I began to go a little bit further and try to find out something about her. She says she's a full-time student at UCLA. She'd finished her work in physical therapy at CSUN and now is doing some graduate study at UCLA. Full-time there, she said. She also told me she worked as a physical therapist. I'm thinking, rather busy schedule. But then she pointed out her truck right outside the area parked on the road there. It was a truck of an interior decorator. These people had given her this truck because she was working for them too. She was an internal interior design artist with florist-type flower things, and so that's her third full-time endeavor. Then she told me that she was studying for her broker's license. Then she told me that she had risen this morning at 4.30, which accounts for her presence in the jacuzzi because she's so full of stress at the end of every day, she must come and find some relief, and that she played over three hours of tennis that day. Now this lady is running, would you say? Running very hard. Running constantly. She gave away what she was running for in a sentence that I captured in my mind and can quote to you. I always do whatever I want to do. This is the only way I can be sure I'll be happy. This young girl is running the race of self. Self Self-pursuit, self-pleasure at all costs and for all things. I will run. Almost confrontive, isn't it, that a person would run that hard for herself and we look at our own life and we don't see ourselves barely trotting in comparison. 
The world and even the Christian community is full of people who are running. Most of whom running the wrong race. Think of it. The race for materialism. The race for acceptance, whereby I give my body away to someone because by doing that I hope to win their acceptance. The race for security, financial, uh, financial security. I know of a man who's given his entire life so that he can be financially secure, as he thinks. You know, look out for the Great Depression. Pure pleasure. People run for pure pleasure, run hard at it, and very well. Intellectual prowess, fame and success. Oftentimes the Christian will run the race of the hypocrite. Looking all right and fine on the outside. Making sure that everybody thinks I'm okay, but in the inner parts of my desires, I long nothing more than to break away from this lifestyle and live it for the pleasures of sin. And I guess my question would have to be for you, which race are you running? I'd like you to give it a name. I'd like you to really think, take inventory for just a second. Which race are you running Identify it. Give it a name. Is it the race of guilt? Trying to run from your guilt because you do things that are wrong and you're full of procrastination. And if you, don't, if you stop long enough to think, you'll realize that you're not doing what you ought to do. So you just keep running so you don't have to think about it anymore. I hope you have it in your mind. Be honest with yourself. What race are you running? Acceptance? Pleasure? Grades? Let's have a word of prayer. God, we would pray this morning that you would give us the courage to be honest with ourselves. That you would allow your word to deeply penetrate our thoughts and minds. That you would help us to become the godly men and women that we so desperately want to be. In your name, Jesus. Amen. The race. It's the race of faith. I'll describe it for you. And then try to answer three questions. Why should I run it? Number two, how is this race of faith run? And thirdly, who's setting the pace? How fast, how far, how long do I have to run? First of all, let's try to describe what it is. It's a race of faith. How do I know that? Look in verse 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It never says it's a race of faith. But look at Jesus there. He's the author and perfecter of what? Our faith. Look up at chapter 11, verse 39. All these things having gained approval through their what? Their faith. The whole chapter, chapter 11, is full of the saints of old who are in this chapter, chapter 11, because they were great people of faith. The whole context demands that it's a race of faith. So it's a race of faith. Well, what is a race of faith? Do I sit around with wishful thinking? Is that how I run that race? I think that can be answered in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is here given a, a definition for us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. The word assurance, it's the assurance of things hoped for. Hope for is future. I don't have it yet. But my faith gives me an assurance for the thing I hope for, which I do not have yet. Another word for assurance could be guarantee. It was oftentimes used of documents which provided evidence of ownership. I have assurance. I have a, I have a document which gives evidence of my ownership of a future thing I desire to have. Something which God has promised me that I will have. These are all Old Testament saints in chapter 11. And if you know much about the promises that God would have made these men, most of them had a future fulfillment. He would promise them today for something which they would not have in their possession for a great number of years. Some of them never, ever possessing that which He promised them. Because the future fulfillment was so future. Take Abraham, for example. Promises were made to him. What kind of promise? Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, that's Abraham. Watch, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in the number, 
and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. God promised to Abraham, I will make your descendants as great a number as there are stars in the heaven and as there is sand by the seashore. Now, did he expect that right then on the spot? As a matter of fact, long after his death. But to him, because he was a man of faith, he had the assurance of things hoped for. Today, because God had said it to him, it was a reality in his life. It was as, it was as if he had it all right then. That's the quality of faith. That's what faith does for the believer. The promise was yet future. It was hoped for. Yet faith is the assurance. The present reality. The guarantee. The document of ownership that what he has promised, I possess. God has said it, God has promised it. Though I do not yet possess it, it is to me a reality. Let's see this faith in action. Look at him in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, what was tested? His faith was tested. Offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Look up here for just a second. You know the story. They waited forever and ever and ever and never had a son until they were too old to have a son. And then God created a miracle and they had a son named Isaac. And it was Isaac through whom they would receive all these descendants and he would become the nation of Israel. All that God had promised was represented in the son Isaac. And then God says, kill him. And he takes him to the mountain and lifts up the knife and is ready to plunge it into him. Why? Because he was a man of faith. He had an assurance of things hoped for. And though this young boy is the only thing possible that can bring all of those promises to pass, God, if you told me you'd give it to me and now you've told me to kill him because I'm a man of faith, I'll kill him. That's faith. He was so confident that God could be trusted that look at verse 19. Though the doctrine of the resurrection had never hit the scene in biblical revelation, what happens? Abraham believed it, that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received back as a type. That's the only possible explanation. If Isaac's the boy, and you have promised me that I will have a descendant beyond count... And you're telling me to kill this boy and I kill this boy, then the only possible option is that you'll raise him from the dead. You've never said you could do that. I've never seen you do that. But I know you. I know your word. And I have an assurance. I have a document of ownership for what you've promised me. And I believe it to the point of absolute obedience. So one, faith is the assurance, back to verse one, of things hoped for. It's developed a little further, the conviction of things not seen. If you run the race of faith, you have a conviction of things which are not seen. Things you cannot touch, things you cannot taste, things you cannot smell, things you cannot hear. Probably the best example of that would be Noah. Look at him in verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen... In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now listen, what did God warn him about? He said, Noah, I'm going to cause it to rain. And there's going to be so much rain that it's going to flood. And when it floods so much, everyone will die. All the flesh that you see will die. And it was at that moment... When Noah went to cut down the first gopher tree in obedience to build this thing called an ark. That he evidenced his faith by showing a conviction of things not seen. You understand? There was no rain in his history. Rain was not a factor until the first rain came when God caused it to rain because of the flood. Noah had never seen rain before in his life. A thing not seen to him. Noah, therefore, had never seen a flood. What's a flood? I've never seen a flood. And by the way, what's an ark? I've seen boats. But Lord, you're talking about something that's a football field and a half long. 73 feet wide, five stories high, and you're telling me to put every kind at two of them each inside of it? Lord, I've never seen these things. What are you talking about? 
But he was a man of faith. He didn't have to have seen the rain. He didn't have to have seen the flood nor seen what an ark would do. Because God had spoken and being a man of faith, he had conviction of things not seen. How much conviction? 120 years of conviction. That's how long it took him to build the ark. Right there in the midst of all of his community. What are you doing today? No, I'm building an ark because it's going to rain. It's going to what? What's rain, Noah? Well, it comes down from the sky. It's going to flood. What's a flood, Noah? But beyond that, we notice in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. In verse 7 here in our text, it says that he condemned the world. Noah preached judgment upon the people based upon things which were not seen. Based upon the fact there was a coming flood, nobody would ever heard of that. But he's standing out there building an ark and preaching judgment on the people that they should repent because it's going to rain. That's faith. That's faith. Never seen rain, never seen a flood, never seen an ark. But Noah said, God said it. I'm living it. I don't care what the obstacles are. If it takes me 120 years to obey that one command, build an ark, I'll be there. I'll build it. And there's just one more element that we should use in describing the race of faith. Not only its ability to take God at His word in spite of what seems obvious, it is a preoccupation with heaven. Look at verses 8 and 9, and we'll use Abraham to illustrate this again. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, called from where? Called from Ur of Chaldea, just above the Persian Gulf. Very fertile area, a man of some means, some wealth. God calls him out of that. And he obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And if that's not hard enough, watch what happened to him when he got there. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. God says, Abraham, follow me. I'm going to give you the promised land. He says, okay, I'll go. I mean, Abraham was just your typical pagan, Joshua 24 tells us, but somehow God worked a work in his heart, and Abraham followed God to the promised land. And he never knew where he was going until he got there. And then when he got there, it says he lived in a tent. He was an alien. He was a foreigner. He was a stranger all of his life in the very promised land which God gave to him. He never owned a single piece of it except for the grave he buried his wife in. That was the only thing that Abraham ever owned out of the promised land. God says, I'm going to give you the land. And he says, here I go. I'm coming with you. But his whole life. He just travels up and down the land in a tent like a nomad, never possessing what God said he would have. Faith is the present reality of something I hope for. It is the solid conviction of things I cannot see. I live based upon two things. If God says it, I'll do it. And even in the process of doing that, I will give up like Abraham did, never possessing the land. I'll give it all up now because I'm looking to go where? To the promised land of lands, the new city. Look at it in the text. Look down at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Who are all these? Abraham never possessed the land. Isaac never possessed the land. Jacob never possessed the land. In fact, it was 500 years after Jacob's death that their first descendant had any possession in the land at all. They all died in faith. And rather than that being some type of lament, some type of statement of defeat, it's the greatest statement of victory that could be stated. All of them died in faith. Without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Watch now. 15. And if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, if they were thinking of Ur, he could have gone back, it says. But 16. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. The other essential element of the race of faith is I am willing to live today sacrificing the pleasures of sin for a season. Sacrificing what this world can give to me because I am on my way to heaven. 
a preoccupation with heaven. Living as a stranger, without rights, without possession here on earth. You and I living without rights, without possession, without the things that most people have on earth. Because we are people of faith and we know we're headed home. To say with Psalm 27, one thing I have asked from thee, and that shall I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. Hebrews 12.1 The writer says, I'm running a race. It's called a race of faith. What he means by a race of faith is an assurance of things he hopes to have in the future. A conviction of things he's never ever seen in his life and an ability to live this life as a stranger and an alien because he knows he's going home and he invites you to run the same race. The word race is agon, from which we get our word agonize. It is a long, grueling event. There's nothing easy about it. It is an endurance race. It is painful. It hurts. But the writer invites you to come. Which way are you living today? Are you living by sight? Do you give yourselves to the things you can touch, the things you can see, the things you can handle, the things you can hold? Or is your preoccupation on the things which are not seen? If you're living by faith, you'll spend a great amount of time in prayer. Though you can't see it, nor can you see the God you pray to. But you have a conviction of things not seen and you will pray. These are tests for you to discover whether you live by faith. You will spend great amount of time in prayer, though you cannot see it. You will spend inordinate amounts of time in the Word of God, though you see the, the pages on the letter, or the letter on the page, the Spirit of God you do not see. But you spend time in that Word because that Word has told you if you do, it will grow you. You will live like Christ. It will have a, an impact on your life. You will be successful spiritually. If you live by faith, you'll spend tons of time. If you live by sight, you won't spend much time in the Word of God. You'll have other things that preoccupy you. Things that, that take your time. Things that distract you. Because you're not a person of faith, you're a person of sight. And you enjoy the things of sight. A person of faith prays. Prays a lot. A first person of faith is in the Word. A person of faith purifies himself. He cleans up his act. He gets the sin out of his life. Because he's aware that God, whom he cannot see, sees everything he does and has promised to discipline him. And though that is somehow invisible, he's a person of faith. He understands the spiritual reality and so he purifies his life. Are you a person of faith? A person of faith gives his money to other people, people in need, the church, because he lays his treasure where? In a place he cannot see. He lays it up in heaven. It's as if to the man of faith, he's taking his money and he's depositing it in the most secure place he could possibly deposit it with the greatest returns ever. But if you're a person of sight, you don't do that. People of sight hold on to their money and they spend it on things they like to spend it on. They don't give to God because they can see God. It takes a person of faith to give their money to the point that it hurts, to the point that they're a stranger and an alien in the land. Where do you stack up? If you're a person of faith, you'll sacrificially serve one another. You'll understand the principle that he who keeps his life shall lose it, but he who loses his life, he who gives his life away, he shall find it. If you're a person of sight, you're like everybody else out there in the world who, who hoards their time, who does only the things that contribute to their personal prosperity and success. If you're a person of faith, you give that away constantly, regularly, to the point that it hurts you. You sacrifice yourself. And lastly, if you're a person of faith, you evangelize people. Because though you've never seen it, you know there is a great white throne. And every man will stand before it. And every man who does not know Jesus Christ will burn forever and ever in hell. And you believe that, though you've never seen it. And because you believe it, because to you it is a present reality of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen, you tell people of Jesus Christ. 
You can't help it. You've got no choice. Are you a person of faith? Or are you a person of sight? Maybe I should put it this way. Are you as much a person of faith as you want to be? I know I'm not. It's a horribly convicting message. I don't know why anybody preached this anyway. I have to revise my giving practices, to be honest with you. So that's it. An invitation from the writer of the book of Hebrews. Saying to you, please come. I am running the race. I invite you to come and run the race of faith. Total and absolute fidelity to the word of God, no matter what it costs you, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it appears to be, you're going to obey. And a commitment in your heart to live like a stranger and an alien on this planet because you know this is not your home. Well, you ask yourself, why? Hmm, nice invitation, but why? Why should I run that kind of race? Give me some kind of evidence. Give me some kind of encouragement. Tell, give me a reason why I should run that kind of a race. I'll give you a reason. I'll give you the reason that he gave you. It's in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. That's the reason right there. Because there's a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. They're all around us. Well, what? What is he talking about? Who are these great cloud of witnesses? They're the people of chapter 11. They're, they're Abel. They're Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. The witness is composed of those who went through the Red Sea as it parted. The witness is composed of those who walked around Jericho as the walls fell down. All of those people are a great cloud of witness who say to you, run that race. Do that. Start today. This has often been confused. These saints are not sitting up in the grandstand of heaven now. You know, they've died and they've gone up and there's Abraham and Noah and they're looking down on us and they're cheering us on. It's not what this is describing. Nor is it describing the fact that they are up there looking at us and if we don't run the same kind of race, then we'll disappoint them. And we wouldn't want to do that. So we need to no, that's not what this is saying. The word great cloud, it's a figure of speech, meaning a whole bunch of people. It's like, wow, there's swarms of people in here today. That's a figure of speech, swarms of people, a whole bunch of people. And it also carries the nuance of they are unified in what they say. There's a whole bunch of them and all of them believe the same thing. They think the same way. They've had the same experiences. They know it's true. They say it. That's a great cloud. And now what are they? They're witnesses. What does a witness do? It confirms or attests to the truth of a matter. A witness comes in the court of law and says, Yes, sir, I saw that person shoot that other man. I confirm, I attest to the truth that it is true. So you say to yourself, why should I run? Why should I run this race of agony, this race of faith? Change my entire life now and try to run this race. Why should I do that? Because there are hordes of people up in heaven who have lived their life, who have since died and now stand on the other side of eternity and they all confirmed in their voice say one thing to you God can be trusted run the race of faith because God is faithful and he will never disappoint you and what he says to you he will do to you he will do for you that's why you should run they all say that. Look at verse 32 in, verse, in chapter 11. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, flight. 35, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in, sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, they went about in sheep's clothing and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these, watch, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better. Look at the experiences. Look at the diversity of problems. Those people say to you today, run the race of faith because God 
is a God who can be trusted. What are the options? What else are you going to put your trust in? Where's your faith going to reside? Yourself? This world system? The pleasures of sin for a season? What, what are the options? God can be trusted. Live for Him. So the invitation still stands. You're invited. Come run. Run harder, run faster than you've ever run before. You say, how? Oh, you got me kind of interested. If all those people did it, maybe I'd like to do it, but how? I, I don't know how to run that race. How do I run the race of faith? Two things. Lay aside certain things, number one, and we'll talk about that. And secondly, fix your eyes on something else. Lay aside certain things and fix your eyes on another. Let's look at the first one. Start at the top there. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to lay some things aside. It's an interesting word, lay aside. It happens to be a present middle participle, middle voice. That means the, the action is done for the agent's own benefit. He ate a banana. He ate the banana for his own benefit. He didn't do it for anybody else's benefit. Middle voice for his own benefit. The word laying aside is in the middle voice. Do this for your own benefit. Let me give you a little hint. You want to run the race of faith? Do this for your own benefit. Lay some things aside. To lay aside is like that of a garment. Take it off. Set it over there. Get it off your body. Off your person. In the basic motif of the passage, we're running a race. So take off your sweatsuit. Don't begin the race with all this stuff on you. Get it off of you or you'll never run the way you ought to run. I was playing my first challenge match in the Newhall Tennis Club this Saturday. Very nervous, I might add. Playing this guy, I guess he was number 12 or something on the ladder. We're out there warming up, you know, and I got my sweatsuit on. And we're just kind of hitting and I'm trying to size his game up and figure out how badly I'm going to get beat, you know. I'm out there and, and all of a sudden it's time to start and uh, so I, we go over to the bench and I take my jacket off and then I pull that little string on your sweats, you know, and it always comes from a bow, it just, just opens right up, but this time it knotted and I was so nervous I pulled really hard so it's a really tight knot and now like he's already done, you know, and he's kind of walking onto the court and I'm kind of standing here like just trying to get my knot undone, I'm going, dude, man, this is uncool, he's thinking I'm a nerd about now, shoot, come on. So I realize it's not quite that tight, so I begin to kind of, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of get this thing off, man. He looks over at me. I'm... So I get this thing off, right? I was not about to go on that court until I got rid of that thing. I don't care how stupid I had to look getting it off. I was going to get it off, and I did. I got it off. I look stupid. I'm happy to say that I want, though, which is redeeming, right? Hey, you want to run the race, they're saying for your own benefit, you've got to take some things off. You've got to get it off your body because you'll never run. Well, what are those things? Let's look. We must lay aside, verse 1, every encumbrance. Now, what I like about this is it says, let us also. See that? Let us also. Who's the other people? All those people in the Old Testament. They all did this. They all laid this stuff aside. Like they laid it aside, you lay it aside. Get it off your body. What? Encumbrances. What are encumbrances? It's weight. It's baggage. This is not sin he's talking about here. It's just extra weight and extra baggage. Things that slow us down. Things that divert our attention from the race. Things that sap our energy from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Things that dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. These are non-moral issues. For the people to whom he was writing it was Judaistic legalism. They'd come to know Christ. And they were trying to revert back to the temple worship. And he's saying, let that go. Not that it's wrong, not that it's sin. Let it go and focus on your relationship with Christ. Get it off your body. For the Christians of our day, what would some of these encumbrances be? We don't have a temple anywhere. We're not worried about that. What are the things that weigh us down? And the things that aren't necessarily sinful, but nevertheless, they weigh us down. What might they be? I would suggest the pursuit of pleasure. 
materialism. How about TV? I'll use myself as an example. I have taken my TV out of my house. I put it in my garage. We had a conversation the other day, my TV and I. He said to me, Russ, guess who's running your house? I said, well, of course I am. He said, nope. He says, I am. I said, you are not. He says, I am too. And then he began to talk to me a little about it. Give me a few evidences. And you know what? He was right. He was running my life. And therefore, he was running my house. I said, well, that might have been true yesterday, son, but it's not true today. So I went behind and pulled his plug under his cable. He's sitting in the garage. He hasn't come out since. Yeah. Is TV a sin? No. Was it in control of my life? Yes. Was it a weight that I didn't want to carry around? Yes. Did it steal time that I wanted to be with my wife and studying the Word and progressing in my growth with Jesus? Yes, it did. Guess where it is? It's off of my body. It's in my garage. And there it will stay until I get enough self-control to bring it back in. What are the encumbrances in your life? Have you stopped and asked yourself that question? What are the things that weigh you down? You know, we're a school that in the process of trying to build freestanding moral agents, we don't run around and try to legislate everything in your life. How much TV you can watch, what you can watch. You can go to movies, you can't go to movies. We kind of just don't talk a lot about that. Those gray areas. We try to leave as many of those unhampered as we possibly can because we want you as an individual to stand before God and develop your own personal convictions on what you'll do and what you won't do. But my question is, are you doing that? What kind of music do you listen to? Could the music you listen to, Jesus listen to? And enjoy it? And be encouraged? I don't know, answer that question for yourself. Is the music that you listen to edifying? Could Jesus listen to it? Are the things that you watch on TV or in the movie theater, are those things which Jesus could watch? Come with you and enjoy. Come on, Lord, let's go check this flick out. Could you take him along? The things you talk about, the way you use your time, my goodness, I trust that you are saying to yourself, man, I'm going to run. I'm going to run as hard and as long and as fast as I can run this race of faith. And I'm taking a long, hard look at what's on my body by way of things which are not absolutely wrong by biblical definition, but which slow me down. They dampen my enthusiasm for the things of God. And as a result, I am going to do myself the favor middle voice, I'm going to take this piece of junk off and I'm going to lay it down and I'm never going to pick it up again. That's running. That's running. There's something else you need to lay aside. It's called sin. It says right there in the verse. And the sin which so easily entangles us. Just full-blown, unadulterated sin. Sex. Dishonesty. Drugs. These things are sin. There are biblical prohibitions against such activity. Are you in sin? Are you living in sin? Are you doing things which are sin? Stop it. It's stupid. There's no value in it whatsoever. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting us. We can't run as fast with you sinning. You can't run as fast with you sinning. Be honest with yourself. Let me talk about some things that you don't want to know are sin, but which are sin. Do you know that when you cheat on an examination or on a homework assignment at the master's college, you are in sin? The same kind of sin as if you murdered someone? I mean, sin is sin, you know. God is an absolute standard. He has holiness. Did you know this will get harder? Did you know when you sneak in and out from curfew and you sneak into that room and you think it's okay because nobody saw you and you really weren't doing anything anyway and you're sneaking in the room there do you know you're in sin when you do that? that is not something that cool college kids do that is sin mm -hmm. yeah, that's right did you know that when you're hungry and you go up the stairs and into the lunchroom and you have forgotten your ID card and you shenanigan some way a meal out of those people without their permission whether it be you take their ID card, somebody else's, and just hold your thumb in the right place. That is sin. Uh -huh. 
That's not some fun little college endeavor where we sneak past those people. In the honesty of your heart, you need to know that sin because you are under the mandates of the school policy and it is to you God's law in your life. Romans 13. See, I told you you wouldn't want to hear this. Did you know that when you willfully violate the dress code... Oh, come on, Russ. When you willfully violate the dress code, you are in sin. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're writing off what I'm saying because, well, everyone else does it, or because you think it's just the school rule and you're not allowing the Lord to be the sovereign in your life and be His authority in your life as He has placed other authority in your life, then you need to pray. Don't write me off. Pray. Pray for forgiveness, first of all, and then pray that your conscience will recover because you have seared it. You are not a person of integrity. You are lying to yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and you're in sin. And the only response to that is to pray for forgiveness and to pray that He'll, he'll renew your conscience and you'll walk in the integrity of your heart. Goodness, we got to run. See, the only people who can do that are you. You've got to do that. You've got to want to do that. You've got to do yourself a favor and take this junk off and throw it away. Say, here I come. I'm on the team. I'm running. And these are just little things in comparison. I mean, if you're having trouble sexually, if you're having trouble with drugs, if you're having trouble with, with, with drinking, wake up. Get a hold of yourself. Talk to somebody. Don't hurt yourself. Well, why should I run the race? Because there's a whole bunch of people testifying to the fact that God can be trusted. How do I do it? First of all, I do it by, by taking this stuff off. These encumbrances, these gray areas, these weights that slow me down, and I get rid of the sin in my life, and I begin to run. Last question is, what's my standard? How fast? How hard? How long? Can I just look at my friends and write it all off? Can I just compare myself to everybody else around here and just kind of fit in? Do I have to take the lead? Yeah, you do. Look at verse 2. Run that race that's before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing. The word fixing. What does it mean? It means to look away from one thing and to look and concentrate on another. Look away from one thing and concentrate on another. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. So we need to look away. We need to stop looking this direction. If these are the allurements of the world, if this is my self-pursuit, if this is my materialism, if this is my self-deluded approach to life, I need to stop looking at it. And I need to stop looking at everything that indoctrinates me that way and encourages me to live that way. Turn my head. I need to look at Jesus Christ. You are my standard. Christ, you are my standard. I will look at you. I'll fix my gaze and I'll run. I'll run with purpose. I'll run with clarity. I'll run with strength because you are the author and the perfecter of my faith. And I'm running a race of faith. He's the ultimate example. Author, I translate that the ultimate example. Perfecter, completer. He is the ultimate example of faith and he is the completer of faith. Let me just quickly show you. In the ultimate example, do you think that Jesus Christ dilly-dallied around with these encumbrances, with these gray areas? Do you think he allowed things into his life which would slow him down, which would divert his attention? He said to his mother once who was trying to divert his attention from the way of God, get out of here. That's his mom. Just, just beat it. I have no part of what you're saying. He says this to his mother. I don't think the Lord let people divert his attention. Did he let things sap his energy? I doubt it. I see the Lord in the New Testament up all night praying for people. People whose energy is sapped and stolen by other interests and pursuits don't do that kind of thing. They go to bed when they get home. Do you think that he allowed things to dampen his enthusiasm for the things of God? Remember Jesus and the temple and the people who were selling things in the temple? What did he do? He went and he, it says he made a scourge. 
He didn't have one, so he made it. A long leather strap with all kinds of metal and rocks. He began to run through that temple with thousands and thousands of people in it. Merchants making more money on that day than they make in their entire year. And he's kicking them out of the temple. Enthusiasm for the things of God. I don't think Jesus had much trouble with the gray areas, with the encumbrances. Look at him. Look at his life and say, I'll run like that. My favorite verses, John 8, 28 and 29. Let me read them to you. And I do nothing of my own initiative, Jesus says, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. That's how refined His life was in the, in the gray areas. Every move, every thought, every action is pleasing to my Father. Is your life that way? Are you under that kind of scrutiny? Refine it. And then sin. Much trouble with sin, our Lord? No. How about people in his life like a college who weren't really the authority of God only because God gave their authority, his authority to them? Did Jesus struggle with stuff like that? How about the Roman government? A vile, debauched system of legislation. And Jesus lived under that. And he treated it with complete respect. He gave it the authority that it was due. He paid his taxes. He obeyed their laws. Jesus did that. So should you. Hebrews 4.15 But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, the ultimate example of walking by faith. Was he the perfecter? Was he the completer? Yes, it took him to the cross, didn't it? It killed him. His faith, his obedience in God or to God took him to his death. He took it as far as you can take it. So what's the standard? Jesus is the standard. What should your standard be? His name is Jesus. How far, how hard, how long should you run? His name is Jesus. To what degree should you push yourself in the agonizing event we call the race of faith? It's Jesus. That's how far. All the way to death. So turn your eyes off these things, the conscious, deliberate choice, and fix them. Turn them off your friends if they hurt you. Turn them off the world, the source of temptation, whatever it be, and fix them on Jesus Christ and so run. Let me just finish. There's an invitation on the floor today. It comes to you from the writer of the book of Hebrews. 